The way to make health insurance available to everyone is to lower the cost of health insurance, and that is what we are going to do. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was President Donald Trump speaking about health care on Tuesday night in his address to Congress and the nation. So what did Trump actually say, and does it matter? You can find our analysis and fact checks of Trump's claims in Wednesday's issue of Pulse. The president misstated or exaggerated at several points. But on this episode, I wanted to go deeper with conservatives and libertarians on their specific reactions to what he laid out. First, I sat down with Tevi Troy. He's the head of the American Health Policy Institute. He's a former White House staffer in the Bush administration, a leading conservative healthcare figure, to get his reaction to Trump's speech and his thoughts on the early Trump administration. Then, after the break, you'll hear my conversation with Adam Brandon, the head of FreedomWorks, a pivotal group for a few reasons. First, they were major players in weaponizing town halls back in 2009 when Democrats were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act legislation, and now they're backing the conservative Republicans who are warning that they just can't support the ACA repeal bill. Both of these were interesting, wide-ranging conversations. You'll hear them in a moment. But just a reminder, you can find Pulse Check on your favorite apps. Please rate us, recommend us, review us. We are up to 100 reviews on iTunes, so thank you so much to the listeners who have gotten us there. 98 of those 100 reviews are five stars. We are incredibly grateful. And with that, here's Tevi Troy. In many ways, the, the speech was a pleasant surprise. Uh, people who were critical of that initial speech, including myself, I thought the, the inaugural speech was kind of dark. I thought this was much more in the realm of a normal presidential speech. You it it was almost boring. It was almost boring for a Trump speech, which in some ways is good politically for him. Right. Uh, it's a weird thing to say that that, that boring is, but but it wasn't good because he did have his showmany moments. He did have that moment with the, uh, the the widow of the of the Navy SEAL, and he you know he's not completely boring white bread politician. He's never going to be that. I mean, even just his, his facial expressions during the speech while he was kind of waiting and basking for surprise for applause that was not what you typically see. But overall, the speech was in the the normal parameters. The moment with the widow, I I heard the applause, but my head was down writing the story. I didn't actually see that until like four in the morning when I went back and watched the speech over again. So it was a big moment, but it it wasn't the moment that I was necessarily keyed in on when when looking for healthcare clues. So focusing in now on healthcare and thinking about what Trump said in that speech, he laid out five principles for a Republican plan. One was keep the popular ACA provision on pre-existing conditions, but there was also the idea of tax credits, expanding the flexibility on Medicaid, uh, expanding HSAs, and then there was one more. Um, oh, uh, allowing insurers to sell across state lines. That old that old saw. Any of those provisions? When, when you look at them, Tevi, did, did they come across as something that was new or notable in your mind? Not really, but again, not in a bad way. You've heard this thing over, you want to talk about old saws. There's this old saw that Republicans don't have a plan for repeal or replace. Republicans have, have no plan on health care. The truth is Republicans have had a general idea for a plan for over seven, eight years. And it includes a lot of the provisions that were mentioned last night. It includes purchasing across state lines and HSAs and some form of tax credits. It also includes tort reform, which he did mention last night. And Congressional Budget Office, I know people on this uh, podcast probably know CBO, but Congressional Budget Office scored a plan along these lines back in 2009, I think it was the Boehner Alternative, and said that that would reduce the average cost of premiums. So there is some sense to what the Republicans are saying. The idea behind Republican plans, I've been saying this for a long time, and Trump said something along these lines last night, which is the idea is to reduce the cost of health care so as to incentivize people to purchase on their own and not take the Obama approach, which is heavy on mandates and heavy on subsidies. I know, I know you're a Republican, and I, I know you're also very intellectually honest. So thinking about what Trump said about his plan would reduce health insurance costs, lead to better care, those principles that he laid out, will they get us there? Or is Trump at the risk of overpromising what the Republican plan will do? I thought it was interesting that he didn't talk about coverage numbers, because I think that's where Republican plans don't match up to Democratic plans. And I don't even necessarily mean that in a bad way. I mean, Democrats are always going to be more generous in the type of and the amount of subsidies they're offering. 
And that, that Boehner plan that I talked about back from 2009, while it did reduce the average cost of healthcare, it didn't cover as many people, meaning it doesn't have the government spending money to cover as many people. So the Republicans just have a different view on this. And, and I think Trump articulated that last night. One thing that I thought was really interesting in, in the Politico coverage this morning was there was this article, I think it was by Sung Min and, and Rachel Bade, where they talked about how different Republicans saw the speech in very different ways. And on the one hand, you can call it vagueness. On the other hand, you could call it uh, wisdom. You try and get both sides to hear what they want to hear in the speech that was given. I mean, he didn't go into that technical level of detail that people like you and I like to delve into. On the other hand, it was the equivalent of a State of the Union address that doesn't go into that level of detail. And I think he gave the general parameters showing what Republicans are trying to achieve without necessarily committing himself on some of the difficult questions that lead to questions about who gains and who loses. It would be weird if in that forum, Trump was talking about like silver coverage levels and, and other an actuarial value. It would be weird on multiple levels also yes. to hear that from Trump. Yes. But but that article that you, you just referenced from Politico, it got to a really big issue right now, which is there are cracks within the Republican caucus and fairly deep ones with conservatives saying, the plans that are out there don't go far enough. They're Obamacare light. There have been attacks on Paul Ryan and his wing. And then there are the moderates in the Republican Party who are worried about yanking away Medicaid expansion, among other things, and leaving some newly covered Americans out in the cold. And the average watcher of, of the speech would not know that because Trump talked about Congress, you need to move quickly to to strike down the ACA. So I, I think what I'm what I'm curious about most is does Trump's vague statement on health care, does that help Republicans by giving them cover and direction? Or does it not really do very much at the end of the day? It's it's just a statement to the country and doesn't give direction to Republicans on what they need to do next. I think the speech helped in two ways. One is in the way we were talking about a few minutes ago, that the, the speech surprised people in that it was one of these normal presidential speeches, and it was actually relatively optimistic in, in contrast to you know, the, the darker inaugural speech, and that there were some explicit calls for unity out there. Uh, he tried to have this unifying message. So it helps in that macro sense. And then in terms of the five principles, he could say, I put out more, pr more principles. They're certainly more detailed than he put out in the campaign. It keeps both camps within uh, within the tent at this point. And what we hear all the time from the folks in Congress is we're going to pursue this via regular order. And so I think that this regular order idea is something that they're going to have to pursue. You know, there were cracks and rifts within the Democrats in the time leading up into the ACA. The policy-making process is very messy. In fact, my friend and a guy who worked for me at the White House Domestic Policy Council, Yuval Levin, wrote a very smart piece in National Review recently where he talked about the messiness of the of the process in policy. And he said that at any given moment, it could seem that a policy has no chance of passing and has 100% certainty of passing. And you can never tell day to day which is going to be that day. And at the end of the day, obviously, things do happen and, and some things get passed and some things don't. But just looking at it at a moment in time doesn't really give you the answer. You just alluded to this. You were in the White House, in the Bush administration, the Domestic Policy Council. You were on the Hill in several capacities in the Senate and House side. How much does one of these speeches like actually shape the course of debate for days or weeks to come? Is this just a blip and a moment where Trump is getting his chance to kind of check off, uh, check off policy priorities and speak to the country and we will then move on in 24 to 48 hours? Or do these become signal moments in an administration where Congress is looking for some wisdom from the president on what to do. I, I think I'll cop out a little bit and say they can be signal moments. I mean, there are so many moments over the course of a campaign, and, and these moments are, are for a, a form of accretion. Over time, they build who you think a person is. But sometimes a politician can surprise you, as I think Trump surprised some people last night. And I think one thing that's very hard for people to do is to try and judge a speech on its merits without looking at the person giving it. I once heard the story that one of the hardest things in the world to do is to be a, in a screening room in Hollywood where they show a movie for the first time. You have no sense of what the reviews are or the buzz is. They just show this movie and you have to assess whether it's a good one. There's a famous story about, um, uh, about Steven Spielberg saw Star Wars and everybody else in the room said it was, this was horrible in, in this initial screening room. And, and Steven Spielberg said, this is going to be a big hit, George, meaning to George Lucas. So I think in Washington, you often look at the 
speech or the event through the context of how you view the person. And I think it, it's hard to step back and say, oh, well, let's look, was this a good speech? Is this a signal moment? Might this change the tone? And I saw on Twitter and some of the coverage this morning that some people who have been relentlessly critical of Trump, both on the right and in, in the media, I'm not going to say on the, on the left because you know, the, the Democrats, you know, they're, in their, you know, they're in their camp. But I think some people said, hey, hey wow, this, maybe this is a different Trump. I, I think also it gets to the sense of expectations and that if Obama had delivered the speech after the speech making that he had done, it would have fallen flat or, or certainly been perceived as not one of his high watermarks. Whereas for Trump, after weeks of bumpiness, this is seen as a, a moment in time where things are a little more still and calm. You were, in addition to being in the White House and, and on the Hill, you were in HHS, you were a senior leader there overseeing biofarm issues, among among other things. In the speech last night, Trump took a couple shots at FDA and how quickly they move to get drugs through the, through the pipeline. Megan's story is about the unbounded power of a father's love for a daughter. But our slow and burdensome approval process at the Food and Drug Administration keeps too many advances, like the one that saved Megan's life, from reaching those in need. Was he right? There are clearly challenges at FDA. You'll hear from the pharma folks all the time that it takes something like 10 years and $1 to $2 billion to get a drug through and that it's not a fast process. On the other hand, we don't necessarily want it to be a fast process. We want it to be an effective process. And I look forward to seeing who the FDA commissioner is going to be. And there's been a lot of talk about who, who, who it might be. But I, I think there and, will be. And the be. influences on Trump's shoulder with Peter Thiel right. pushing for candidates who might be more interested in deregulating what the FDA does. I think whoever the FDA commissioner is is going to look at easing certain regulatory burdens. I think that's just going to be the approach of a Trump administration on FDA, but not at the expense of safety, right? Safety is, is the, the top priority over there. Uh, so I, I think Trump is right to point to some challenges at FDA, but it's also important to look at this within the context of what's going on with his call to reduce pharmaceutical pricing. I think if he's going to put together some kind of plan on pharmaceutical pricing, he needs to have carrots like FDA deregulation or easing the process at, at FDA, along with the sticks uh, that he's talking about, which include a reimportation, which the uh, pharmaceutical companies don't like, or uh, some kind of direct negotiation, which they're also worried about. You now run the American Health Policy Institute, so you're working with employers, among other groups. What do they like that they're hearing from Republicans on health reform, and what are they worried about with some of the plans that are currently circulating? That's a good question. Look, I, I, my sense is that employers dislike uncertainty. So that's that's the number one thing. They, they want to know what's going on. Yeah, they must be loving the Trump administration so far. <laughs> but in addition to that, they want to have a stable system that allows them to continue to provide health care to their employees and dependents should they so desire to do so, as long as they have enough incentive to stay in the system. And, and 177 million people get their health care via employers. And that is a crucial building block in the healthcare system, and it's a building block that we should ignore or harm at our peril. So we have to be very careful about that. So I, I think the employers that I talk to say they're very worried about ta changing the tax treatment of healthcare, for example. And if you change the tax treatment of healthcare, where employees and employers get a tax break for getting healthcare through an employer-sponsored plan, I think if you change that, it might change some of the incentives. And one thing we learned via the ACA is that it's very hard to get people covered. And the employers are good at getting people covered, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. One, one report that came out from your team, I think just this week, is that the budget reconciliation measure that would repeal the ACA would leave many of the employer mandates in place. Does that mean, in, in your mind, that repealing the ACA via reconciliation doesn't go far enough? You're referring to a report that Mark Wilson, our chief economist, a very smart guy, worked at uh, Department of Labor, also worked at uh, the Hillary Task Force uh, doing healthcare in the, in the 90s. I did not I was, know that. I was like wow. pointing that out to Mark. But, uh, and Mark also is one of the uh, few people, we had a conference last year, and they said, who do you think is going to be the president next year? And he raised his hand and said, Donald Trump. So uh, he's, a, he's a very um, far-seeing person in, in many ways. Uh, but Mark pointed out that reconciliation does not address some of these employer mandates. That, that doesn't mean reconciliation is the complete end of the process on dealing with health care and dealing with the ACA. But if you just use reconciliation as laid out in that 
the, that scoop that you talked about that Paul Demko got, meaning the the uh, the leaked draft of the bill that that Politico got a hold of, that would not cover these employer mandates, and so that that, that is an, an issue. However, I will say that uh, while while Paul did have a good scoop, I've heard that they've moved on and that there are other versions circulating around. But that the, the Paul scoop did give us a sense of where things were at that moment a few weeks ago. So, and just to be clear, this is the House GOP bill that was reportedly submitted to CBO. And we we had that scoop. It's now been about four or five days, but the bill itself was about two weeks old, even when we saw it. Is there a Republican plan that is circulating, or or one that has been kind of injected into the into the conversation that you, Tebby, think is especially good or promising here as a way to repeal and replace the ACA? I'm careful not to put my finger on one particular plan. I think there are a bunch of plans that Republicans are talking about that are interesting and creative. And I think for the most part, Republican plans tend to focus on that umbrella of issues that I talked about that would help reduce the the cost of health care. And the real disagreements among Republicans are not on those major planks that would reduce the average cost of premiums, but on what the benefit is to individuals who need the help. What is the form of that benefit? Is it a tax credit? Is it a refundable tax credit? Is it age-related? Is it income-related? I think those are the kind of sticky questions that need to be resolved. And I, I don't have a preference necessarily. I just think that uh, you need to design it the right way. And you mentioned CBO a couple of minutes ago. CBO is hugely important in this process. I remember back in 2009, the first Ted Kennedy proposal on what became ACA. And it got a CBO score that uh, I'm not exaggerating when I call it horrific. It was something like $3 trillion for covering 13 million people. And people were freaking out and pulling out their hair and saying, oh, this is horrible. And then Max Baucus and his folks went to work and said, well, you know, let's raise a tax here and let's reduce a subsidy there. And they, they tinkered and they played around with it. Let's create the Class Act, which was a long-term insurance plan that actually went away because uh, Secretary Sebelius thought it was actuarially unsound. But it helped the CBO score. Yeah, the, the, the long-lamented uh, Class Act, right. RIP. <laughs> right. So th- working through the CBO process is a part of the whole policy process that people often don't recognize. And figuring out how to get the CBO score you need often requires certain compromises and agreements and shifts. And I think you want to maintain maximum flexibility so that you can deal with those shifts that the CBO scoring process requires. You've had an interesting career. We've talked about a few of those stops, the White House, the Hill, being a leader in HHS. You're also a a multi-time published author of, of various books, new book out recently, Shall We Wake the President on Emergency Response and, and the President's Role um, and the Consequences in, in Healthcare and Otherwise. I, I thought the, the book was especially well-timed considering the election and Hillary Clinton raising questions about Donald Trump's fitness for, for an emergency. As a reference point for listeners, how would you describe or, or define a disaster in, in that would need, need attention? Is it a hurricane? Is it Ebola? Is it something else? Like, what is the class of issue that requires the president to weigh in? Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. And first, I have to give a thank you to Hillary Clinton because her whole 3 a.m. ad in 2008 inspired the title of my book, Shall We Wake the President? Because it's, it's a real question. Do you wake the president? What is a presidential-level disaster? And what I talk about in the book are disasters with what I call ripple effects, effects that go beyond just a localized event. If there is a major crash on I-95 and people die, it is a tragedy, it is a bad thing, but it is not a presidential level disaster. If there is a raging pandemic that threatens to cross multiple states and kill millions of people, that is a presidential level disaster. Now, obviously, there's a big range between those two things I talked about, but when something has scale and can affect people in multiple states, and can have uh, ripple effects beyond just the immediate place where it's taking place. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about presidential level disasters. And in the book, I divide it into two major categories, acts of God, which are acts of nature, and then acts of man, which you might include uh, terrorism or some kind of massive hacking attack. So uh, I I split it up into those big, big umbrellas. Is a bad CBO score an act of God, (laughs) given that that CBO is supposed to be God in in Washington, D.C.? According to Chuck Grassley. A, a bad CBO score can be a disaster for the person who put forward the legislation. Fair point. The By, by your definition, I, I'm just curious, uh, Trump talks often about how Obamacare is a disaster. He even said that last night. So, so by your definition, does Obamacare actually qualify as a disaster? 
But I'm a critic of the Affordable Care Act, as you know, and I think it's had a, a lot of problems in, in terms of cost hikes. The word disaster in terms of presidential-level disaster just doesn't apply here. So yeah. I mean, I, you know, we, we could quibble about the, the, the choice of word. But uh, you know, I'm kind of protective of my own little word of disasters, given the, in this book I wrote. Yeah, probably not something we need to wake Trump up at 3 a.m. about that. That Medicaid enrollment numbers are our X value. Well, um, I mean, in terms of Trump, you know, waking him up is really not an operative concept because he might be up at 3 a.m. tweeting. I mean, he he's, seems more apt to wake up his aides than they are to wake him up. And this was something with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton would, would famously be up half the night. He didn't sleep that many hours. And he would be more likely to wake his aides than to have them wake him. I, I ask this with, with no small amount of self-concern because I am often up at those hours too. Is that a problem for executive decision making when, when you are that tired that you are not maybe at your best when needing to make important decisions that can shape the course of your presidency or the country? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I, I don't think key presidential decision makings tend to be made at that hour. I mean, you might have uh, with Trump a presidential tweet or with Clinton, he might be asking about some abstruse policy issue. But in terms of the policy process where you have different meetings. There's uh, deputies meetings and principals meetings and policy time with the president. I think those meetings tend to take place during the, the daylight hours. I, I do think it's interesting, though, you just alluded to the, the tweeting that Trump does. There have been numerous reports that he will tweet something at 530 in the morning, and the White House team has to then figure out a policy that fits around whatever tweet Trump fired out at, at 6 a.m. and how the ripple effect goes down. One one last question on, on disasters is bringing back to healthcare. How vulnerable is the nation right now to a disaster that kind of rises to that level, a pandemic or, or otherwise, how concerned should our healthcare system be? I have some worries. We did a lot of work on this when I was at the at HHS working on preparing for pandemics, and we are better prepared now than we were, let's say, in 2000. But the last two diseases that worried people in the U.S. were Zika and Ebola. And despite the fact that we spent billions of dollars on a strategic national stockpile and spent $500 million a year on maintaining it, we did not have a countermeasure for either one of those diseases. So if something comes up that is more virulent and more deadly than either of those, and we don't have a countermeasure for it, it's a real hole in our strategy. Our whole strategy is making sure that we have something that we can deploy, meaning a countermeasure, a vaccine or an antiviral, and we can get it to the place within 24 hours and we can distribute it to the population. If we don't have a countermeasure and it's going to take months and months through the FDA and NIH and all the various steps in the process, I, I don't know what our plan is. One, one last question that I just thought of here. Hillary Clinton inspired the, the title of your book, Donald Trump, there are multiple questions about his readiness for an emergency. How comfortable would you feel under, say, President Jeb Bush? Like, if, if, if Jeb Bush was president right now, would that be a more comforting thought in the case of a 3M emergency than President Donald Trump, who has not been tested on the executive scale in this way? And it's sort of an impossible question to answer. I mean, you want a leader who knows how to communicate with the American people in times of crisis. And Trump, uh, and I wrote this in the Wall Street Journal before the, the, can the, the election, uh, has certain advantages. He has a good way of getting a message to people so that everybody hears it. Uh, he has a good sense of the moment of showmanship when he went down to Baton Rouge, for example, during the floods this summer, and he gave out supplies, and that actually was one of the better moments of his campaign. On the other hand, you worry about statements that lack credibility, and will the American people listen or follow his instructions if they don't, A, trust what he says, or B, given this polarized time that we're in, if they don't like the messenger, and that could be on a Democratic side or a Republican side, but if, you, if the American people don't like the messenger who is in the White House, will some of them say, you know what, I'm not going to take a vaccine because the person who's telling us to take this vaccine is from the opposing party, and that does worry me. And, and also if the mechanism, the outlet has been delegitimized partly by Trump, I thought it was funny that Sean Spicer was quickly trumpeting some CNN poll last night that CNN viewers thought Trump did a great job days after saying CNN is, is a non-starter and, and, and fake news. You, you also wrote a book that I wanted to touch on, Intellectuals in the American Presidency. It's about 15 years ago. The value of intellectuals to presidents like JFK and Nixon and Clinton, sometimes the lack of value that intellectuals provided. Is this White House friendly to intellectuals? It's a great question. That was my first book, Intellectuals in the American Presidency. It did come out in about 2001, and it looked how intellectuals have dealt with various White Houses dating back to Kennedy. This White House is 
seems to be dealing with different intellectuals than we've seen in the past. And I've written a number of pieces for Politico magazine about this. There was kind of a conservative intellectual establishment. And that intellectual establishment, for the most part, did not back Trump during the campaign. And I wrote a piece before the election about the certain group of intellectuals on the conservative side who did back him. They mostly tended to come from the, the so-called West Coast School of Straussianism around the, uh, the Claremont Institute. And since the campaign, he still has those supporters, but there have been other people who have been more sympathetic to him from the traditional conservative establishment who have uh, coalesced around him. And I think it's leading to some interesting shifts within the conservative movement. In fact, the recent piece I wrote for Political Magazine suggests that the conservative movement might be splitting into three distinct groups. One is the ever-Trumpers, the ones who are very supportive of him and continue to be. The second is the anti-Trumpers, the ones who, despite um, the, the fact that there's now a Republican in the White House are can, can, can continue to be critical of him no matter what he does. And then there's what I call the, uh, the safe space conservatives. These are ones who really don't want to engage on the Trump issue per se, but they will criticize the media for being overly harsh on him, and they will criticize the excesses of uh, left-wing protesters, and they use it as a way to avoid engaging directly on the Trump issue. Who are the most prominent intellectuals associated with the Trump White House right now? Uh, you, you think a little bit about the, the Claremont School, and there were some, some people who've backed him, like uh, Charles Kessler, uh, Larry Arn, uh, Victor Davis Hanson has also been supportive. I don't know if these folks are regularly meeting with the Trump White House, although I believe Larry Arn from Hillsdale College has been consulted on, on many issues. I, I think that's the kind of thing that develops over time, and you have a group of people within the White House. And when I was in the White House, we had the Office of Strategic Initiatives that was headed by my friend Pete Weiner and also by Barry Jackson, uh, another good friend. And they would reach out to intellectuals on behalf of the president. So they formalized the process. It's not clear to me yet how that is taking place. But but I, I do know that uh, you've got this guy, Mike Anton, at the National Security Council who went by the pen name Decius during the campaign, and he is close to many people in the Claremont School. I assume he is uh, leading some of that intellectual outreach. He, he went by the pen name for years online and wrote about all kinds of things, from national security issues to, I think, like his taste in wine and, and mm -hmm. clothing, um, which was kind of an interesting un unmasking. You are an intellectual. Has this White House reached out to you? Uh, no, I've had no formal outreach from the White House. I do have some friends who work in the administration, and uh, if people call me and ask for advice, I'm, I'm happy to give it. But uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I've not been officially tasked with anything, and I'm not uh, uh, officially on, on board with anything. If they asked you to serve, would you? It, it, it's a good question. I think if the President of the United States asks you to serve, you have to think about it seriously. And, and I think that's if it happens if a Democratic administration or a Republican administration. Obviously, with this kind of thing, it depends on what the role is and what your responsibilities would be and, and how much uh, authority you, you have within the uh, process. But I'm not looking to serve, uh, and I think that would be how I'd want to answer the question. As we are talking, it is the morning after Trump's speech. We are a little bit ahead of a vote in the Senate on Seema Verma's confirmation moving forward to run CMS. So by the time listeners hear this, I, I assume that vote will have proceeded and she will have gotten the support of the Finance Committee. You've gone through the confirmation process, the nomination process, to be deputy secretary of HHS. What was that experience like? H how partisan did it become? Especially, I, I think at the time you were going through that, the nation had been pretty divided. It, it was late in the Bush administration. The nation was pretty divided over some of Bush's social policies. The confirmation process is a long and arduous one, and I wrote a piece about this for National Affairs a, co a couple of years ago. It takes four to six months if everything goes right. The, I think that is too long. To, the position I was up for was deputy secretary. The deputy secretary is an important role. I, I don't think it should take that long to get someone that senior into an administration. And, and deputy secretary, to be clear, you are essentially like running the day-to-day -day operations of HHS. Yeah, I was the number two person, the chief operating officer of the Department of Health and Human Services. I was eventually confirmed unanimously by the Senate. And I don't think that happens anymore. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's a good thing when, when both parties say, okay, this is a person who we may not agree with everything he says politically, but he is qualified and ethical. And I think those should be the two standards for all nominees, whether it's a Trump White House, a Clinton White House, an Obama White House, et cetera. And so I worry and I'm a little saddened by the fact that you have so much partisanship in the confirmation process now. And I hope we can get back to a time where non-controversial nominees can get unanimous uh, approval by the Senate. I think we'd be better off that way. Last question. 
it's March 1st. What are the odds that the GOP passes legislation to repeal the ACA this year? I think the odds that the GOP passes something to repeal most of or make significant changes to the ACA are very strong because I think the the way the reconciliation process is set up, if they don't act in this budget window, it'll be very hard for them to do it later. So I I think there's a lot of pressure on them to get it done. It may not make everybody happy, but I I think the odds are good that something happens. If you had to put a number on it, what what number would it be? 70%. Okay. Well, we'll see if if, uh, that bears out. We could ask your economist who predicted that Trump would would rise. I'd I'd love to know his number. Uh, Tevi Troy, thank you for the time for this interview. Thanks. And I really love the podcast. Hey, this is Dan Diamond, and thanks for listening to Pulse Check. Just a reminder, if you are enjoying these conversations and you are not subscribing to our morning newsletter, you can rectify that right away. Go to politico.com slash politicopulse. Sign up for a subscription to Pulse, the newsletter. You can get us at 6 a.m. if you are a pro subscriber, 10 a.m. for everyone else. And with that, let's get to Adam Brandon of FreedomWorks. And as you'll hear, it gets a little feisty at times in our conversation. Who was your libertarian hero growing up? Did you have hero? one? Hero? I mean, it's, it's that's a funny statement. Well, actually, it was probably my dad, to be honest, because he was a dentist in Cleveland. And he, there was a real scary time in the family history when he basically mortgaged everything to grow his office. And he, he was very pensive like a year later. And I asked him what? And he's like, they changed a lot of the regulations on his business. And he had to move his like x-ray equipment down like three feet which means he'd have to close one of his operating rooms, which means we would go bankrupt. And so he had he had to go to work every morning knowing that because of some bureaucratic change that really was inconsequential, his entire life's work was put on the line. And, and I thought that was unfair. I thought that was really, really unfair. So that was a clarifying moment that early in and life. And then I read Atlas Shrug. So he <laughs> put those two things together, and that's where I am today. That's, that's usually the path toward the making of a young libertarian. Right, right. And, and as I, when I, I also read Schumpeter, and, and I had a, a stint where I was overseas. I was at Oxford in England. And one of the things they, the tutor would make you do is you had to take two ideas and kind of merge them together in a synthesis, two different ideas. And what I, since I was studying economics, I found that I could always talk about Austrian school principles because no one else ever did, and I had an easy end to a, to a controversial subject. But at the end of the day, I find that money and economics is like water. It just, it, it just flows. It, has a, it, has the, it affects the effects of gravity. And so if you want to grow an economy and you want to grow wealth in a society, there's things that you do. And, uh, and, as, and I think that's what politics is, is we are trying to figure out as a lot of people how we're going to most rationally divide up our society resources. And I find that, that a functioning market economy, and this is a great segue as we're talking about healthcare. how do you best deliver these healthcare resources? And we have a scarcity amount of resources in our country. And I believe that the more, um, more, more price transparency, the more, more the functioning the market is, the more the relationship is between you and your doctor, the better healthcare decisions we're going to make. Well, let's, let's use that segue that you've teed me up for so nicely into healthcare and politics right now. So in, in the landscape of ACA repeal efforts, right. on Wednesday afternoon as we're talking, mm-hmm. there are three Republican senators, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul. And you just mentioned my three favorite Republican senators. Well, I, I know they're they're aligned with your group. Mm-hmm. You, you've applauded their stance, and their mm-hmm. stance is we cannot vote for Correct. the leaked bill that would repeal the ACA because it's, it's Obamacare light. Yes. It doesn't go far enough. And Correct. and those three on their own, they can be the, the roadblock to moving forward. They have tremendous power because the Republicans need – they can only lose two votes in maximum in the Senate. And then on the House side, Meadows and Walker, the caucus leaders for the Freedom Caucus and, and Republican Study Committee, have come out and said the exact same thing, that this uh, bill creates a new entitlement program. It's, it's, it's not enough. I assume that not only are you applauding these guys, you're, you're, you're talking them and rooting them on. Here's, here's my question. After years of Republicans vowing to repeal the ACA right. at first opportunity, are you worried that Republicans now saying we can't vote for ACA repeal, that that opens them up? two new vulnerabilities, the risk of being primary, the risk of being seen as hypocritical by their voters. I, I mean, all of the above, I'll give a blanket, yes, this is a very complex time, but you've got to do it right. The reason that we wanted Ace, the Obamacare repealed 
was not so we could have Donald Trump care or not so we could have Paul Ryan care. And whether no matter where you stand on this right now, Republicans own Obamacare. That was the mandate for the election. So we have to have a little squabble. And, and unfortunately, these can't be inside our in, behind closed doors. This is very out in public right now. Sometimes because Politico is reporting on those closed door struggles correct, and bring them correct. to light. So we're but, but unfortunately, we have to. Uh, I was. I think it's actually very interesting that we're going to be probably very close with leadership on some of the things they're pushing on on fundamental tax reform. But here on Obamacare, we have a lot of daylight. And and I have to take one quick step back. When I look at what's wrong with Obamacare, is that that there's there's like two so, two solutions to our healthcare problems. One is the first one is with Obamacare. Let's force more people into it. It's about access. Let's Obamacare is about putting more people into this system. And I look at it as the system's busted. And what I'm looking at reforms are, let's do the things that lower the cost, and that's how you increase access. I mean, as a nation, we should be absolutely embarrassed with the amount of money and resources we're putting into healthcare and the results that we are getting on the other end. This when, is a terrible return on investment. When you look at that curve of what developed nations spend on healthcare and the re- return they get, the U.S. is a total outlier. This is something that left and right economists mm-hmm. totally agree on. Yeah. You mentioned the the feuding and the squabbles mm-hmm. within the Republican Party over ACA. I, I was struck, Adam, that when I was thinking back on the Democrat fights, and, and those were real fights in 2009 and 2010 mm-hmm. over health reform, they certainly got heated. I, I don't know if they've gotten as heated as some of the things I've seen. I, I think Meadows' wife yes, sent an I email yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> saying, you know, we, we can't vote for Ryan Care, like blasting. By the way, I love that, that you have a congressman's wife telling her friends to call. That shows the power of grassroots right there. I mean, normally you would think that she would be in this almost elitist position, right? She's married to the congressman. No, she's getting her friends to call. That I, I love that. Free, Freedom Works MVP of the week. That's right. That's okay, right. Well, maybe that precludes my next question about whether this is good or bad. You think it is a good I think, development? Well, what I think you have, what actually taking another step back, the reason we are where we are today is the failures for Republicans to articulate their vision for health care in the failure of Clinton care. And when Clinton care was repealed, you just went back to the we're status quo. not repealed. It, it didn't. It oh, didn't went up, okay. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Sorry. When it was failed, you went back to the status quo of what it was before. It, there was no change. Then the next big changes were Medicare Part D that Republicans brought in, S chip. That's something that Republicans brought in. It was like these core parts of Clinton care all of a sudden are coming back, but they're coming back from Republicans. So that set us on the path to Obamacare. So right now, and this is why I'm totally zen with a very crazy moment, because right now is that opportunity to, and I thought that when, when, when Ted Cruz hit the floor of the Senate a few years ago, that that was our last shot at stopping this train. No, we were given a, a and, and having a near-death experience helps clarify some things. And, and the fact that we have this one more chance to get health care right, what I don't want to do is tweak it. I don't want to kind of, bring back some of the best parts of Obamacare, because if you do all of that, all you're doing is setting your study, the, the stage for, for Bernie Sanders care. That's the next Medicare step on, for all in the next step on this train. What we have, the sliver of opportunity is to actually back up the rhetoric we've been saying, patient centered health care between you and your doctor that we believe philosophically is going to be good for, for everyone, for the healthcare, distributing our healthcare resources. That is our opportunity right now. And that's why if we have to stop and cause some problems, we're going to have to do that because we've got to get it right. So just an editorial note, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if Medicare for all is going to have mm-hmm. congressional support. It, it Great idea from the left wing, probably not the votes, at, right. especially in a Republican-led Congress. But thinking about what you want Republicans to hold out for, if, if you've got Cruz and, mm-hmm. and Paul and the others saying, we're not going to vote for this, what is that thing that you want them to vote for that you are comfortable so getting behind? So in 2015, you had this, you had this vote. And you had Republic, only a handful, Susan Collins, and I believe it was Senator Kirk who voted against it on the Republican side, three Republicans on the House side who voted against this 2015 repeal bill. And it made it all the way to the president's, and then, and then the president, President Obama, vetoed it. That should be the starting point. That should be the starting point. There was unity. And I have to ask my Republican colleagues, if, if you weren't serious about the vote then, why did you take it? So... 
use that as your starting point. And then when, this is why I'm a big fan of Senator Rand Paul's bill and, and companion legislation from, um, from Mark Sanford in the House. This actually puts us on the path to what we've been talking about philosophically, repealing Obamacare and replacing it with patient-centered alternatives. You could argue that one reason they took the vote then was because the political consequences were better than the practical outcome, which was they knew it would get vetoed. Well, but I was serious. And I think these other guys were serious. That wasn't a joke for us. That was a real legit bill. I I think coming across to me, to the listeners, is your your true passion for this. Well, let's (laughs) let's put this now in context Mm -hmm. of Trump last night gives Mm -hmm. his speech his de facto State of the Union, where he lays out a number of principles on on what the sure. Republican plan should be. What did you hear from him that you liked and you didn't like about healthcare care moving well, When forward? I look at what, what President Trump is following right now, he seems to be very closely following what Paul Ryan is pushing. So I'll probably be using the word Ryan's plan uh, a little bit more than I would even use Trump's plan. And I see there are some guidelines that Trump laid out. And it's not so, I mean, the point here is not just repealing Obamacare and then we're done. That's not the point. The point is, where, where how are we going to get to these patient-centered markets going forward? And right now, uh, there are some things I like in, in, in what the president and Paul Ryan have talked about. You, you're talking about um, expansion of HSAs, which I think is a major part of things going forward. Health savings accounts. Health savings accounts. I mean, so that's nice. Um, but the big problems I have is there's still an insurance mandate. And I just have a philosophical problem with government mandates. So that's a philosophical issue. Uh, beyond that, then you have the Cadillac tax uh, is still in there, which is an area that I could agree with union Democrats on. Part of the if we're going to be moving towards more individualized health care plans, I don't want to be taxing certain plans. I want you to be able to get the plan that you want. But the real problem gets down to this difference between tax credits and tax deductions. To me, a credit is just it's a subsidy that's all it is it's it's spending by a different word and if we get down this road this would be the disaster because from here on out every single political converse or a presidential race it's going to be talking about how high are you going to raise um, the free money in the tax code and that's we got to get away that's not a market mechanism that's not helpful and the other problem I see, and this is my understanding of economics, whenever you give free money like this away, the insurance companies are just going to add that right into the cost. So you're not doing anything to really help bend the cost curve. And when I mean bend the curve, my definition of bending a curve is actually spending less, not reducing rates of growth. Well, I, I want to be very explicit mm-hmm. here. Trump did say one of his principles is the tax credit, which lines up with Speaker Ryan. You are saying... That's, that's a that's no-go. Non-starter. That's a non because that is a new entitlement. And and so this is, I guess this is one of the best ways to communicate with the president is to do this, uh, you know, to kind of lay out your, your principles in the media. But and, and I actually have hope that you this is some that the drafts that you're hearing are new and that there will be changes. But this is why you have Lee and Paul and Cruz and the members of the House Freedom Caucus speaking up because they don't want to have their fingers on a new entitlement program. We've done the, gone down this road. Let's try something else. So to, to be clear more broadly, you are opposed to government subsidies for health care. The, the current tax break for employer-sponsored insurance in some ways is the government subsidizing the cost of health care for 160 million people. Sure. And, and actually, the, see, I, I well, you call me a sellout here right now. I will say that part of the solution probably going forward is going to be some actually well-funded high-risk pools. And that's something that, that will probably have to be funded by the federal government. And, and I'm, I'm, I understand that that's probably going to have to be part of something. Sorry, high-risk pools for just the people covered by ACA or for more broadly for people? More broad, and I'm talking about if, you, if I looked at Rand Paul's plan right now that started these different markets. And I, when I look at Rand Paul's plan, it's, it's the first major piece of legislation. And then after that, I think you would see as years go on buildups. And part of that plan would probably inquire us to actually fund some of those of the, the plans. And that's my issue is that we're starting to talk about one or two percent issues in the pool. What I'm trying to figure out is, well, how are we doing health care for most everyone? And and I just don't think when you start adding these massive new entitlements, but back to your, your spending issue, you have to be very careful in the tax code. So to sp- explicitly answer your question right there, I think the fair thing to do is individuals and businesses all need to be treated the same under the tax code. 
period. And in the long run, my vision would be that your health insurance is no longer so tied to your employer, and that's how you truly make it portable. So we should change the tax treatment of employer-sponsored insurance. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct, but that's like step two. That's a little bit beyond the battle that we're currently talking about right now. Got it. I want to come back to ACA, but there is something incredibly newsy that you have incredible perspective on, and that's the town halls of the past week or two. Mm -hmm. FreedomWorks is one of the signature conservative groups when it comes to organizing. They stole our plan. <laughs> well, I was going to ask how you must feel. In 2009, you, you guys were the ones helping organize conservative resistance to the law that became the ACA. Flip that around yeah. last week. Liberals, the politics are different. But how do you feel watching the same set of well, strategies? Let me tell you how out? I feel as Adam Brandon and how I feel as the president of FreedomWorks. As Adam Brandon, as a, as a citizen... I thought that was really remarkable and very cool to see. And I thought it was cool because this is this is real democracy in action. And I love that stuff. That's to me, that is your right. That's what the American Revolution was about, so that you could go down and yell at your politicians. And I think that's great. Now, as the, the person who runs FreedomWorks, I take it as a call to action. Okay, so you threw down the gauntlet. You took a look at what we did with our strategy and how do we respond? That, and so as running the organization, I think that we're getting into a very exciting period in American politics, which is going to be less centralized here in Washington and more decentralized. And these political battles, I think, are going to go from talking heads on television shows to actual town halls. But is there going to be an incentive for lawmakers to hold these town halls if they're just going to be yelled at and the clips will go viral and Jason Chaffetz will look bad and then blame it on paid protesters? Why would there still be town halls if they're going to be co-opted by activist groups? Well, it's the way I look at it is that you could say co-opted, but a lot of these things is we help drive people to these town halls. We will help. But it's the people who have to show up. And, And a congressman can run away from it. But the incentives are eventually they're going to get smoked out. They really will. You'll, they'll be. Then the last thing. This is also the beauty about Facebook and Twitter. If you go to ground and just hide as a congressman, there's other electronic ways for your constituents to find you. And, and there have been some constituents who have showed up, just scanning the schedule, showing up at things that weren't town halls, Correct. but confronting their congressmen. That this way. is what is so beautiful about our system, and 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 and. Again, when I said the citizen Adam Brandon was excited to see this because I'm, I'm very proud of our democratic system that we have here. And there's varieties of different systems across the world. And ours really is you have, a, you, you have such a great opportunity to influence. The average citizen is such an opportunity to influence. And what I hate is when I go home to family barbecues and people in my own family are like, ah, the whole system's so corrupt. Well, get off your butt and get to a town hall and take part in it. That's what's beautiful. That's I have so much respect for what what Donald Trump did because he was able to connect with people in a way that no one's ever connected with. I look at what he's doing with Twitter. This is a modern incarnation of the fireside chat. And so get people, yeah, talk. I think representatives need to talk via Twitter. I think representatives need to get out and meet their constituencies. And if they don't, they probably aren't going to stay elected. Do we know that? Do we have evidence that lawmakers who have avoided town halls have suffered as a result? I think it's lawmaking. Well, I look at um, okay. Let's talk. Let's talk about Dave Bratt and and all the Virginia all, lawmaker and is, who unseated Eric Cantor. And one of my favorite human beings on the planet. I love I love talking with Dave Bratt. He's coming to your big him. conference uh, or, or not conference yep. or event two weeks sure. from today. But what what Dave Bratt has done is he's ta- he's he hasn't run from a town hall. He's throwing them up there and he'll take all the all the comers. He enjoys it. He enjoys getting in there and actually having that debate. Well, didn't he hesitate at first? I mean, he was worried about the women who were all up in his grill. That, that quote <laughs> went viral. To his credit, yeah. he then did hold an event. Well, where he, the women got he never up backed his, away. I don't yeah. think he ever I don't think Dave Bratt and any he ever said, I'm not going to do this. I think he would prefer to have town halls that were more balanced and in and, and town halls where he's talking with people that uh, I mean, I think the most important thing, I think, for all these folks, and this is the critical part to all this, as long as these town halls are people from their districts and that they represent, you know, let's go. The problem would be when when you start seeing evidence that people from outside the districts are flooding into the town halls, then it becomes a show. So I I want to double back on that. There's Mm -hmm. been a lot of criticism from some conservative politicians that these are paid protesters. They're coming Mm -hmm. from outside the district. 
there, there has not been a lot of evidence from the reporting that our team has yeah. done that that's happening. Do you have a stance on that? I, I, my stance is I think a lot of this is organized per se. But but then again, I, when I watch the videos that I see, these seem to be really impassioned people that, I mean, most of the videos I've seen, these are people who are really concerned about the future of health care. So Republicans better have a good response for them. One, one other thought on town halls before moving on, which is you're talking about the positives and constituents getting involved. I, I think there's a very easy argument from the other side, which is these were designed to be a certain kind of forum. Now, if there are big activist groups on the left and the right helping organize opposition, it's, it's sort of like the filibuster in the Senate right. being used for something that it wasn't originally intended to do. And if you're that average constituent who maybe doesn't love the ACA, yeah. but now that town hall has been converted into a pro-ACA rally, that makes it a lot harder to get your message across. Well, that, so I, I, I just wonder, have we broken the town hall in America? I don't think we've broken. I think the, 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 the town hall in America, the concept is most important is you better be able to look around that room and recognize that these are people from your community. That's the important thing. And then, then you could have your disagreements. But I, my guess is, is if we went back to the 18th century, the town halls got a little raucous there, too. I, I went back and watched some of the 2009 town halls, and some mm-hmm. of the complaints were things like death panels in the ACA and Barack Obama's birth certificate, things right. that have been kind mm-hmm. of disproved. Complaints this year were more tangible, that if, if a constituent lost her coverage, she would lose access to a doctor Lose By the, access one to of medicine. The, one thing that's very, th- when we have our activist model, uh, we usually bring our activists in, in, either in, in regional events or in DC, and we spend a, like one day doing tactics and the other day doing policy. And the most important thing is, is when a FreedomWorks activist goes into one of these meetings, we don't want someone to jump up on stage and say, look, if you cut all foreign aid, we can balance the budget. We want to send people in with facts. And you're alluding to this event we're having on March 11th. Uh, we're going to be. That was March fifteenth. Yeah. The original one was March eleventh. I'm sorry, we changed the date. Yeah, we changed the dates a little. Actually, what happened originally is I think March eleventh was a Saturday. This one was actually interesting, and we were going to do it at the DAR Constitution Hall, and then we started seeing what was happening with these marches and all, and we realized well, so we put five or six thousand people in DAR Constitution Hall, and it's on a Saturday. What's the effect? So we changed our tactic to, in, in talking with some of the folks, they were perfectly happy coming back in the middle of the week. And, I, and we immediately thought, well, I'd rather have a much smaller crowd that was highly focused going into members' offices than a weekend event that was really a lot of fun. And I think that's part of the change in our tactics is we're really driving home with these more targeted. Like we, had, we did something for Dave Bratt last week. We did something, I think there's something going on for uh, Mark Meadows Right now, I mean, we're we're, we're trying to be very tactic and who, tactical and who we're supporting and when we're turning and adjusting folks our up. strategy. Correct. I I do want to get back to this question though because I think this yep. is at the heart of the ACA issue yep. right now. Constituents coming up and saying, "If you take away my coverage, I will lose access to these things that I need to live." Should they lose access to those things? The problem is that with the argument is this is the problem we're facing with entitlement reform as well. If the argument is you're going to take away my social security. Well, you're going to lose that argument. You need and, and do what? I mean, my argument with say entitlements is, I could show a plan for a very uh, for how personal accounts are actually going to just wildly improve your retirement. The problem for Republicans right now is they need to show how their healthcare changes are going to deliver higher quality healthcare at lower cost. So the problems that that they've been having in these town halls is there people people have every right to say, "Hey, I got Ob- Obamacare. That's what I've got." And you're going to take it away. What are you going to replace it with? That's where the Republicans weak. Yeah. need to answer that. And I actually am very confident that when I look at what like Rand Paul and Mike Lee are doing, they're doing a better job than most Republicans in actually articulating this is what a conservative, libertarian, small government constitutional health care plan would look like. Well, if Republicans go ahead and pass that 2015 reconciliation bill, which mm-hmm. is something that you want them to do, mm-hmm. that would wipe out the Medicaid expansion, mm-hmm. which covers something like 11 million newly eligible sure. people mm-hmm. for coverage. You are It has no replacement for Correct. them. Correct. You would be okay with that Medicaid expansion going away? Sure. I mean, I would say I, I, I believe from what I've read that two-thirds of those folks were already eligible before they got into it. This is it. Brian Blaze's point. Brian Blaze, who's now in the White House on the NEC. So, but then you look at that last population. So and I, and what I like about the, the, the Rand Paul bill is it's that 2015 plus. 
plus massive HSA health savings account expansion, allowing you know, the state line, doing all kinds of other things that will create a market almost overnight. So what I the way I like to do policy is not one giant fix. What I'd rather do is set it off on its course. And, and let's be honest, I always, Rand Paul spoke at a FreedomWorks event the other day, and one of the first things he said was, Republicans do a very, we talk like we don't care. Like, I'm not going to say those people who are losing their health, their health insurance, I, I, I'm not, I, I care. I want them to have health insurance. I am not, I'm, I think there's a lot of individual reasons why those folks don't have health insurance. And I'd like to one by one go through like that three-year-old with leukemia that there really isn't a market solution for. We need to have a solution for, but that's kind of on the, that's those are those side those are smaller percentages let's get the get it right for the majority of the population and then once we have a functioning system that's lowering costs and increasing care for those people who are not getting the benefits of that system well then you come back and you and you fix that with policy so even even though taking that criticism that maybe the medicaid expansion it's not 11 million it's mm-hmm. only 3 or 4 million right. people and there will be some sort of replacement but maybe it won't come right away mm-hmm. it seems like the republican plans as scored and and looked mm-hmm. at by independent experts would not cover as many people as the ACA currently covers if one american dies mm-hmm. because of losing coverage mm-hmm. is that an acceptable outcome well, I, I i hate getting i never say um definitive statements a 100 I, not one person or i don't like saying that that's again, but these a are real people yeah these are real people but your what, own point just now yeah, with these lawmakers are re- have to keep the real people in mind sure i want to keep but i'm what I'm thinking of is how do you build it? We're talking about a massive system. What is it going to look like in five years? What is this going to look like in 10 years? So that one person who can't get coverage, I don't know why they couldn't get coverage right now. My guess is, is it, and also in the, in the Paul Ryan or the Rand Paul, there's too many Pauls in this conversation. In the Rand Paul plan, there's a two-year delay. So everything kind of continues as it is for two years right now. But I would actually argue right now, you're probably having more people dying from lack of coverage that would be saw the people would be saved if we move to these new systems. So why, I, why would that happen? Because, because there would I be think more coverage or be the more, quality would be better. I, both. And I actually look at the innovation that I mean, I remember as a good libertarian, I'm one of these guys that believes in, in human power and the ability for, for humans to solve problems. So I believe as you free up these markets, there's lots of different, there's things that we don't even think of right now. The, when I think about your f- cell phone, and I know that someday I'm going to take a pill, right? And then as I'm going through the day, my cell phone's going to tell me, look, you need more vitamin D. Hey, you might be getting a cold. Hey, you know, your cholesterol, like, no joke, you got to get, that's where he- healthcare innovation is going to go. And I want to fully embrace a system that is going to be embracing that. Remember talking about these healthcare outcomes, not to jump around, but I get so excited when I think about what the frontiers of technology that we're about to get on and the preventative care that we're probably going to get on, being able to for you to work with your own phone. Um, I mean, I'm now conscious of how many steps I take in a day because I see it on my phone. That is a healthcare outcome. And I want to make sure that we're that, that you're pushing that. I think the more people But it sounds lives, like we're developing those things right now, even with the AC in place. Like those I think technologies. You are, but have, I think you if you if you let this thing fly a little bit more and you bring more competition, like it, we're talking about the, about these people who are losing their care. How many people in America have a choice between one or two healthcare providers? I want you to have 180 choices or 350 choices. And that's how getting back to your that one person with care, I believe in my system, when that person has 180 choices versus two, they're gonna find the coverage that they need in my vision more than the current vision. So thinking about Republicans settling on a vision and agreeing on something that they are going to be able to vote through both chambers, how soon will that happen? And do you see it happening? It's going to happen. It's going to happen this year. I think it's going to happen. I think what you see right now is this is the first trial balloon. And I hope that there are some cooler heads that prevail and be like, you know what? Republicans should not be about creating a massive new entitlement. What we should be about and not being scared of our own shadow to get out there and say, we believe in these free market principles. And we believe uh, actually one of the people I love hearing talk about these issues is John Allison uh, from uh, the former head of BB&T Bank, he used to be the president of the Cato Institute. 
he gets so excited when he talks about uh, the moral case for capitalism and how it provide in the abundance that it can provide for society. We need to be talking more about the moral case for what we're talking about in healthcare and how this is going to better serve and better distribute healthcare uh, resources rationally. I mean, that, that's where we're kind of losing the battle right now. We seem like such mean curmudgeons taking health care from people. No, we're trying to build a system that everyone can get the health care that they need and they want. That's it for Pulse Check today. Thank you to Bridget Black Coffee Mulcahy for excellent production work. Thanks to Tevi Troy and Adam Brandon for their time. You can find Pulse Check on your favorite app. Please rate and review us. And you can let me know at ddiamondpolitico.com who you'd like to hear from next. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.